Tonight I'd like to uh, speak about um, the judging mind. And in doing so, um, there are a few reasons. One is that besides next to knee pain, it's probably the most frequent complaint among you. Uh, and on retreat, it, the echo chambers of that judgment resound um, rather tumultuously. And most people uh, just live with the kind of judgment that they live with every single day, but it becomes um, amplified in volume and uh, so that it really feels as if it's a, a problem. So that's one reason I want to address it this evening, just to look at this thing called the judging mind and see what we can discern about it. But there are a couple of other reasons as well, because what I want to do is take the judging mind from the obvious pain that is pushing it, motivating it, and move the practice through the pain line of judgment to drop down into understanding and the movement of that pain and how it resides and how to work with it and then fall even further into some depth of stillness beneath that. And so it's, a, it's a, a methodology for looking at any reactive pattern we might have, be it judgment or whatever kind of blueprint. And then the third reason that I think this particular topic is important to us all is because judgment is an active ingredient that we involve ourselves in moment after moment, really, because in some sense, every thought is is a judgment. And every judgment fixes us in location. It gives us a, a positionality. It gives us a location. It not only fixes the world, but my sense in comparison to it, who I am in comparison to what I fix. And so it's, an, again, an active movement of mind that allows us to be defined, to come to the sense of who we are, to the sense of self-definition. And if Buddhism is nothing else, it's the exploration of our self-definitions, how it is that we form this sense of self-definition moment after moment. So judging. Judging is an indication, I think, that something is amiss. And... One of the instructions is to notice it and to acknowledge the fact that it's even there. Judging, judging, as we often say. But that's not good enough. It's not good enough. Because the judging is motivated by pain. And unless we follow the pain to behind the judgment, the judgment just continues. You can note it all you want. 
we have to go to the source of the pain. Last night, Eugene was talking very directly to that point, I thought, and very nicely to that point. That Buddhism is not a call to languish in the adjusted mind states that we find ourselves on retreat. We often wait for the first hump of the retreat, the first couple of days hump to get over so that we can slide down into a kind of a quiet and smooth pasture in which relatively, there's relative ease, there's more quiet, there's some smoothness, but it's almost as if we're waiting for that hump and then it goes for a few days and then there's the hump of reintegration. And I think the hump is important because the hump is really the screams of the mind that we traditionally and normally live with, ordinarily live with. Unless we take some advantage advantage to the fact that they are occurring in the context of a retreat, we, we miss a significant part of what the retreat is about, which is to look at where we're disturbed, where we're in conflict, where we're in struggle. I mean, the Buddha wasn't pointing to anything but that, really. He, t- he's, he talked about one thing, he said. The end of that. The end of that. And I think sometimes we, because meditation induces a number of other qualities that allow us some sense of soothing, being able to be soothed. And most of us are so fatigued, so tired, so stressed that we're looking for some way to be soothed, some respite from the kind of turmoil and tension that we're under day after day. And we take advantage of the meditation for that purpose. Not that it's wrong to do it that way, but it's not the complete story. To build a repository of quiet and calm allows us then the right environment, internal environments, to address the pain but not just for themselves, not to take those things on just for themselves, as ends in themselves. So we go to the difficult. We go to the where it's difficult. And I have a great deal of um, feeling for that because it's the last place we want to go. Our lives have been difficult enough. That's not why I came here. We came here for some relief from that. And yet that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And it's not that... It's, we have misunderstood how to address those areas of pain. Now, judgment feeds upon itself, does it not? That is, judger, a judger, in which we all are, I'm a judger, judger, it's like a Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I judge too much. I've hurt other people with my judgment. <laughs> I bottomed out in my judgment. And we collect at the water cooler not the alcoholic bar, but the water cooler, and we each generate our judgment, and we get caught up in the swirl, and it feels 
nothing, a judge, judger likes nothing more than to have another judger across the water cooler to accentuate and to exaggerate their form of misery. Hmm? Complaining, judging, oh, he's, oh, oh, oh. And you can feel the swirl down. And it feels so good to have somebody else validate the miserable world we're living in. And we just, oh, 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 and it just goes. And, and yet, the, the person of awareness feels that, feels the, the pull down, the suction, the vortex of that swirl down. And, you feel, and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. This is, but it likes to collect, the energy likes to collect around itself. And it's very difficult when you're with two or three other people to judge and they're looking at you to add to that momentum for you not to. It feels very difficult to pull out of that. And so we have to understand that the culture is aligned with judgment to an extraordinary degree. This is not a political talk, but I need to talk about how the culture by its very nature, induces judgment. Not the only inducement of it, but certainly a major component of that. When you have a market-driven economy where everything is quantifiable, where things are seen in terms of quantity, and things are tried to sold to you, and by the, the nature of advertisement, is to make you feel lacking in the thing that's being sold, and you have 17,000 of those imprints per week, what do we feel like is going to come out of us when we sit down quietly in a meditation? That I'm sufficient? So judgment becomes our value system. It becomes our caste system for having and not having. And judgments are induced and encouraged to maintain the economic viability. We need to feel insufficient. Now, there is a payoff and a pain to judgment. It's very important to understand the payoff and the pain. Until we come to every problem within us and see why it is that we do it, why it is that we run with it, what's the payoff, what are we getting from it, how does it feed us, and the limitation, the other side of the equation, our our understanding is not complete. You can't just have the pain because the way or the reason needs to also be seen. What do we get from the judgment? So tonight, part of this talk will be to show us the payoff and the pain. And the payoff is that we get validated. No matter what our sense of self-worth is, it can be validated through our judgment. A low self-esteem sees everyone as higher. A high self-esteem sees everybody as lower.
there are three types of pain that I can think of that the very act of judgment induces. The pain. One is in the act of judging itself. Just judging. The burdensome act of judging. It's said in, I think, the third Zen patriarch. The burdensome act of judgment. The second pain is the motivating pain behind the judgment. The third is the tension it creates with the judged object. I had a friend who I loved dearly and somebody made a judgment about her in my presence, just a comment, a gossipy comment. And it took me the longest time not to see the judgment when I saw the person. It sticks. And we try to make it stick. Because if we can make it stick in other people's mind, it validates our own. You see, it's the whole thing is built on self-doubt. And doubt likes nothing more than to have multiple, uh, multiple attendees then it feels safe, far from its doubt, because other people are also validating the judgment. So we must look at judgment in terms of its internal mechanisms inside of us, not just rotely, Label it, judging, 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 judging. Has it stopped? (laughs) And at least we think the more spiritual we, we become, the less judgment that we have, let us think differently. It just changes nature sometimes. And... It becomes a little more insidious, really. <laughs> because you can often feel the person judging, but, but keeping right speech. <laughs> <laughs> and their eyes betray it. Right? Somehow that's more holy. Or not to admit to our prejudice, which is a form of judgment. Because as spiritual people, we don't have prejudice, right? No, we don't have that. Mm-mm. No. So we don't acknowledge that shadow, and therefore it never heals. No. And then the judgments become... They take on a different range and sit, and they're like, she's sitting, well, I have to... Well, they're, they're sitting longer, I've got to sit longer. And they're sitting so straight. I mean, they're like a Buddha, and here I am just miserable. <laughs> and we look out from our eyes, and we see everybody sitting like a Buddha, and then we're the schmuck. <laughs> right? that's, so that's the way the judgment in spiritual... And I had this thing about sitting longer, which I had well into my monk years. Sitting, I've got to sit longer, right? Because if you're really a good yogi, you'll sit longer. Well, I went to this monastery, Zajan um, Jumnian's monastery. And I got there just as a monk, a, a Chinese monk, 
was getting off of retreat. And so I said to him, through an interpreter, I said, uh, how long have you been sitting? He, I said, what have you been doing? He says, I've, just, I've been sitting day and night. Sitting day and night? <laughs> Already my... <laughs> and he said, yes, he only got up once a day. Once a day to bathe in toilet. And he sat day and night. And I said, for how long? He said, three years. (laughs) You you can't hold that. It's like, you know, so you're you're blown off the landscape. You're off the landscape. So then you sit for an hour, you're damn glad you did that. So what is it? Let's go into this th- this pain because this is really so important if we are to understand judgment. That pain of insufficiency, that pain of lacking, that pain of the neediness, that neediness from whence judgment in most of us, most of us, comes out of. And so what does judgment do? Judgment gives me an artificial position in relationship to that which I judge. So the pain of my inadequacy, I'm boy, I'm, I, I rise above the pain of my inadequacy for a brief moment as I am judging someone. For they then hold the pain and I hold the elevation. And so there's a, there's a moment of buoyancy in which I'm above my inadequacy. Hmm? Do you feel that? But, the, but, it, but it has a leak. <laughs> and it collapses in on itself. And then I have to do it again. But I not only have to do it again, I have to do it with more emphasis and with more exaggeration because the belief I have this belief that I am inadequate. And even though I buoy myself up and I raise up and that felt so good, I collapse back down. And then I have to do it even more exaggerated, more boisterous, to raise myself up above the level that I was... Is it any wonder that there are so many judgments when we sit down, when we look across the room? Their mind is laden with this burden. Why is it laden with the burden? Because we are loath to go to the source of that pain. We're looking for alleviation of the pain. We're looking to be soothed. So what, you see, the last thing we really want to do is turn to that pain. 
because that pain, if it were just pain, all right, I can, but it doesn't. It contains the very belief, the critical belief that devastates us. It contains the critical issue, the edged issue of our life. That's what it contains. I will do anything before I go there. And we have to play out countless strategies, countless strategies, to circumvent that pain. Doing anything because those critical beliefs are what we believe about ourselves. Not just pain, but our personal belief about it. This is me. And so we play out countless strategies to do an end run around that pain. Anyway, anything I can do to create distance from me. And it happens very quickly. Blame. Very quickly. It's like the stone hits the water, touches the pain, and skips. It just keeps skipping. Comes back down, hits again, and skips. It's like a well-thrown rock, flat across the surface of a pond. We take flight again and again with a different strategy. No matter what the reactive pattern is, it contains a belief system within it and is only sustained by our judgment. All emotional intensity, all reactive emotional intensity is sustained by a judgment. So we play out, we play out the strategies of, of blame. We, t- we, we play out the field of self-improvement. And again, I'm, but that's a field of strategy to try to go from this set of beliefs to another set, anything, to offset, to to wiggle, to to move with this thing. We can recount our history and say, yes, it was because of this or that that happened. But the pain's still there. The pain hasn't moved because we've explained it. Perhaps it allows me an orientation not to feel so much self-blame in regards to it, so that can be a, an important strategy to take some of the edge off the pain, or we use enormous number of skillful means to try to ameliorate, get in t- just the edge, just the edge. But the belief is still there. And the belief holds the fear.
Buddha, we're going this way. And the Buddha's going. <laughs> so what do we do? What do we do? We go to the pain after and only after our strategies have been played out. We can't pretend that we're at the end of the strategies and now we're ready to go to the pain if we still have an idea that something will allow us to get over this pain or get rid of it. We have to see that there isn't anything we can do to get rid of it. We have to come to the end of our... We have to bottom out. We have to bottom out. And some of us have come to that and some of us have not. And that's fine. That's fine. Some of us want to bring skillful means in. It's beautiful to see that because we're working hard at it. But at some point, at some point, and when that is, it's individually determined, At some point, we have to hold the pain. And even when the pain is held, it's still, it's like holding on to hot coal because the fear of getting too close to it still burns so brightly. And as long as I'm moving in relationship to that pain, as long as I'm flinching, as long as I'm looking around it, I'm looking for the thereafter when I get over the pain, when I'm looking at all with any kind of dodging sense, the pain continues. has to. Because that's a judgment that I'm inducing. I'm keeping indu- I keep inducing the pain with my judgment. The pain is there, and I. And the struggle continues. And most of what we've been doing in the course of this week together is learning how to approach it. First, that we even need to approach it, and secondly, that how to approach it. Because we're usually doing everything else but approaching it. So we've got ourselves in the right direction, and we've narrowed the distance, but most of us are still playing out strategies in relationship to it. Subtle ones. But all it takes is one concept, one thought for a strategy. And so sometimes our distance between ourselves and the pain is only a concept thick. But that's all it's needed. That's all it's needed. And what if Because it's the fear 
of what we think. If we really embody that pain, then we are we are afraid our worst case scenario, which is what fear will always induce, is that we will be embodied. We will become. We will become what we already believe we are. We already believe we're that. So I sit there and you find yourself reacting, pulling back. And that's why we have talked, spoken again and again on the quality of relaxation. Relaxation. Just relax with it. Just, just relax. With relaxation, there's no tension. And therefore, it, it gets very... Uh, the, the distance is very shallow. Just relax. Be at ease. Don't add any judgment to it. You don't add judgment to that which is just... Okay? Okay, I can feel. relax and say yes. Relax and say yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. Now, if we were to end there, that would be a very nice retreat, but it would be humanistic psychology, where we would have oriented ourselves to our problems in a way that allowed less resistance and turmoil and anxiety in relationship to that problem, but we would still be people having problems to fix and using our meditation as a means to do so. That's not the end of Buddhism. When we don't move, when the problem is in front of our eyes, and there is no resistance whatsoever to that problem, fear cannot be maintained. Fear is only maintained through the act of resistance. And we like the act of resistance because the fear defines us. It gives us a project to do. I'm getting over my inadequacy. I'm working on my inadequacy. I'm improving myself. I'm getting over it. I'm learning about all my inadequacies. I've got four times of ther- Bach flower remedy. I've got doing yo. I'm well defined. Well defined. So now, if I add nothing to that, what happens to my definition? What happens to the sense of me in relationship to the one thing I have in my life, problematic as it may be? At least it's defining me. At least, it shows me who I am. Something to work on. A lateral movement to involve myself in over time, hopefully not to die with it, but maybe. But what if I didn't move? What if I brought no time into the equation whatsoever? What if I 
just brought stillness. Feel the quality of stillness in the room. Move with the talk. What if we brought that level of settledness to the problem? The fear, the inadequacy, where is it? What comes up, though, is the next level of fear. And that is, if I give up my inadequacy, who am I? It's what I've always had. And in doing that, in challenging my inadequacy, I move to the next layer in which I am negating myself. At least I know who I've been. Even if it's been a struggle. I used to keep a sign on my desk that says, it's better to be wanted by the police than not wanted at all. (laughs) But now if I'm willing... to be truly quiet, the next fear that, that surfaces, and there are many, there's this permutations of all kinds of fears during this. And we're just going big chunks here, because we only have, I only have one night. <laughs> so we're going big chunks. Is the fear of self-negation. The fear of being nobody. You know what it's like to be negated? for somebody not to pay attention to you, to be dismissed, to say, you're nothing. You're not even worth paying attention to. That's the fear. You see, the mind, it knows where we're the weakest. Obviously, it knows where we're the weakest. just brings up those points. So we're quiet with that. So now we're quiet with that. Just quiet, just still, just awareness. No movement. Because I can see that any movement just creates a new struggle, a new judgment, and allows me to play out the theme throughout my life, but it does not heal completely. And now my heart feels the urgency of complete healing So we move into the fear, through the fear, of self-negation. But that's not the end, because it's the, the greatest of all fears. Greatest of all fears. Self-negation was a belief that sustained myself away from stillness, away from silence. In silence, in negation, at least I'm negated. I'm still here. I'm still worthless. I'm more worthless. But I'm still now 
the great stillness, the great stillness beyond the negation, the unformed, the unformed. Stillness is unformed. Another word that the Buddha uses for nirvana, for complete contentment, is the unformed. And here, we can't be formed. (laughs) No edges. No diameters. No measurement. No place to travel. No struggles. It's beautiful. The beauty of it is that you use that to come to that. It's so... In the laws of science, there's a law called the law of, I think it's parsimony or parsimony, where something is seen by its absolute eloquence. It's so elegant that it has to be true. So too, the sheer beauty of bringing nothing to nothing just there, just stillness, just where it is. Okay. Okay, I can feel this. Okay. Now there's total aliveness. The words like emptiness and void, I just have no time for. Because in this is fullness richness. All we've done is follow the pain line, move with the pain line. All we've done was go back and Every step of the way, we wanted to turn around. From the first step, from the time when we just wanted to be soothed and having the driven pain of our judgments. Okay, now let me look at my judgment. Okay, let me go into that. Okay, oh, inadequacy. Okay. So judgment is a defense against the feeling of inadequacy and the firm belief in our inadequacy is a defense against the fear of being nothing. And the fear of being nothing is a defense against the silence which confirms our nothingness. But that's not the nothing the fear portrays, because the fear portrays void. That's the full heart. That's the heart that Eugene was talking about. That's the full heart. And all along the way, as we address our pain, the heart comes more and more into play because we are meeting each incident, each event, with our aliveness, with love. And it just moves right into itself. From love to love. 
from stillness to stillness, from awareness to awareness. So the means we employ are the ends we seek. Just that. Full circle. Now to rest. Feel in the room. Feel if you just get a sense of the pervasive stillness. May it be so. Can we sit for a minute or two? Just this sitting. No resistance to it. Nothing. No resistance. No objection. No judgment. 